I next interviewed Dr. Kelly Hunt, and to begin, she presented a patient from her practice. So this 48-year-old woman who was seen by her physician because she found a mass in her right breast in the outer aspect of her breast, and she had an ultrasound performed that showed a two-centimeter area that was thought to be partially cystic, and so she was told she probably just had a cyst in the breast and she could undergo observation. So she came back six months later, the mass she thought was increasing in size and had another ultrasound, and indeed it looked like it was larger than the two-centimeter mass they'd seen previously. It was about three centimeters, 3.5 centimeters. So they did a core biopsy, and it was read as a phylloides tumor that was thought to be borderline. So there were some features that were suggestive of perhaps stromal invasion, but it was difficult to classify based on the core biopsy. So she was referred to me for surgery. And typically our approach is to say, well, you know, if it's a borderline phylloides tumor, then certainly we try to excise it with a negative margin, but not necessarily wide margins. And so we did a segmental mastectomy and you know, it was about a three and a half centimeter tumor in greatest dimension, so relatively large defect in order to excise the entire tumor with some normal tissue in all directions. And so plastic surgeon saw her and placed an implant. She really didn't have enough tissue to do any kind of local breast rearrangement or any kind of oncoplastic reconstruction without bringing in tissue from latissimus or something in order to replace the volume defect that she would have. So he put in an adjustable saline implant. And her final pathology showed a 4.4 centimeter malignant phylloides tumor. So there was increased stromal cellularity and overgrowth, and they saw mitotic activity, 2 to 10 mitoses per 10 high-powered field. So our pathologist felt like this really was best classified as a malignant phylloides tumor. And so from there, you know, she had negative margins. We didn't feel like she needed any additional surgery, but the question comes up, what about systemic therapy? What about radiation therapy? So we referred her to our medical oncologist, and based on this type of pathology, there's really not any substantial data suggesting that systemic chemotherapy would be of any benefit. And in general, our approach is to use, if we do use chemotherapy, to use more of a sarcoma-based soft tissue sarcoma regimen as opposed to a breast cancer chemotherapy regimen. And of course, the toxicity is a lot higher with that type of approach. So our medical oncologist did not feel there was any significant benefit to systemic therapy in the setting, so they didn't recommend it. And she was seen by a radiation oncologist who also, I think, wavered quite a bit about the benefit to radiation, which reflects the data that's in the literature. You know, we don't know if it really improves local control. She felt like because this was a right-sided breast mass and the patient was having breast-conserving treatment, if you will, that radiation could offer some benefit, but the patient really was not convinced and she declined. So we're just at this time following her with surveillance. She's been doing well with no evidence for recurrence. At the last San Antonio meeting, you all had your case series of more than 200 patients that you reported over the last, I guess, 40, 50 years, actually. What did you find in that case series? And 
What do you see in terms of management in the patients in the community? Any myths or misperceptions? Well, probably the major misperception that I see is that people feel like if it's a phylloides tumor, regardless of whether it's benign, borderline, or malignant, that they all need to be treated aggressively with wide margin resection and consider radiation. So it's a low incidence. It's a rare tumor. And so we're not going to have huge series, like even our large series was over a long period of time. And I think pathologic assessment has varied throughout the years and how things are defined, measuring the number of mitoses, trying to quantify the amount of stromal overgrowth and other features. You know, it depends on how much the pathologist really describes to you and how much you can quantify these different things to be able to get an understanding. My feeling is that in large part, the clinical picture gives you a better idea of what's going on. So some of these benign or even borderline phylloides tumors, if you just excise them with a negative margin, in general, they do quite well. The ones that are growing very rapidly clinically that we see where patients will come in literally, you know, a month or six weeks after they first notice the mass and it's, you know, three times the size, you start to see increased vascularity in the skin and where it's just really rapidly growing. Those are very aggressive, generally very aggressive tumors. And, you know, I think probably we need a better understanding of what the underlying biology is that's driving the growth of those tumors because local regional therapy is relatively effective, but they often develop systemic metastasis pretty quickly. So right now, I think we're lacking a really good understanding of the biology of those tumors. And so by just throwing a lot more chemotherapy or radiation therapy or even more aggressive surgery at the patient isn't really going to achieve a lot in the long term. Using this approach, how much of an issue is local recurrence? Well, you know, so that's the problem with malignant Floyd's tumor. What I've seen in many patients is that even with wide margins, you know, the patients will develop local recurrence right in the center of the scar, right in the center of the resection cavity. And that becomes a big problem. You know, oftentimes the patients that I see with local failure, they'll have multiple, multiple local recurrences that we continue to excise. And eventually we run out of soft tissue to cover the defect and rotate into the area. So usually when I see these patients with local failure, that's when I'm more interested in trying to pursue some type of systemic therapy to see if we can get any idea if we're going to have an impact on that tumor. Because once we excise it, we really don't have anything to monitor unless they also have distant metastasis. And so that's where I think using, oftentimes we'll try to refer these patients for phase one trials and try to look at novel therapies and do biopsies to look for targets. But there's still a lot of information lacking. So I was fascinated by the poster you had at the recent ASCO meeting looking at breast implant-associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And I see you have a case here. Maybe we can start out with that. You're a 61-year-old lady. The 61-year-old woman had breast augmentation in 2001. I just saw her earlier this year. She said that for a few months, her little small dog who sits on her lap in the evenings 
kept being interested in her upper right chest wall and smelling and kind of, you know, touching her there and things. And she said it just became really obvious that there was something going on that he was looking at. I got to say, was, when, when I saw your write-up, I thought it was a typo. No, when you said no. dog, her dog was interested in her right chest wall. That's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very strange. But so she went to her physician and said, you know, I think there's something wrong here because my wow. dog's... And so they did a chest X-ray and could see a soft tissue mass there. And then, of course, she ended up having more extensive evaluation, including you know, mammography and ultrasound, and she appeared to have a right interpectoral mass, so a mass in between the pec major and pec minor, without any other significant abnormality that was obvious in the breast or around the breast implant itself. So she had a biopsy, and it showed a malignant large cell neoplasm with necrosis, and I think it was assumed that she, you know, had a lymphoma, she was seen at an outside facility where they decided to give her chemotherapy. So standard, you know, six cycles of CHOP or CHOP as, you know, we know it. And she had a PET scan before and after, and it did show some reduction in the SUV activity in the chest wall mass, and there was no other evident disease at other sites. So she was referred to us to look at local therapy. Now, of course, you know, usually we see patients that have some kind of a fluid collection around the implant or a mass on the chest wall. And so this appeared to be just in the interpectoral region on the right side, but on the original PET scan, it also, there was suggestive of some abnormal nodes in the right axilla, although they were never biopsied. And then also on exam, she clearly had a very firm right breast implant with what felt like fluid and thickening as compared with the left side. So we felt like this indeed could be an implant-associated lymphoma. And so what we did was we resected the implant, and we always do a complete capsulectomy. We took a segment of the breast tissue where it felt like there was thickening and a mass along the chest wall, And then the area of the interpectoral mass appeared to be completely separate. So we resected that with a margin of muscle around it and then also did a lower axillary lymph node dissection because of the concern about the pre-treatment PET imaging. And really what we found was just this ALK-negative anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is what we see with these implant-associated lymphomas, but it was only in that interpectoral mass. There was nothing in the implant capsule. And so, you know, this is a little bit of a quandary. I think that because she got chemotherapy, you have to question whether that had something to do with it and perhaps could have eliminated any disease around the implant capsule, but not the nodal disease, which is presumed what this interpectoral mass was. And so radiation oncology recommended radiation therapy to the regional nodes and the chest wall, thinking that this may be an atypical implant-associated lymphoma with more of a regional spread as opposed to the typical implant-associated lymphoma that we see. Can you talk about what's known right now about the pathophysiology of this condition? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a lot of question marks about how this develops and which women are at risk because there's a huge population of women out there with these, you know, textured implants, which is thought to be sort of the source of it. And so, you know, should everyone have their implants removed? You know, I mean, I don't know how you would get the word out to everybody who's had these implants, but a number of the patients that we've seen that have this didn't realize that they had the textured implants. I think a lot of people who've gone for breast augmentation in the past maybe didn't have a lot of information about what type of implant they had and what the risks associated with it might be. So now I think there's definitely, you know, a more of an effort to have education about what might be underlying cause of this and who might be at risk for it. But I think it's still, it's really a rare condition. And so it's hard to really create a huge campaign around this issue. And when you see the lymphoma, is it adjacent to the implant? So it's in the implant capsule itself. And it's often what we see is fluid around the implant. So many cases that we've seen with this the patient doesn't have a mass at all. They just have this fluid around the implant within the capsule. And so one of the pathologists that I work with, Roberto Miranda, who's been really interested in this process, he's right now doing genomic sequencing on these, on the cells that are recovered from these fluid collections and also culturing the cells from the implant capsules to try to learn more about the biology and what's underlying the development of these unusual neoplasms. And do you see disease elsewhere? Well, there's certainly cases of that, but in the patients that we've treated, it's actually very rare. They seem to, in large part, have localized disease. And so, you know, while some have advocated using systemic therapy and radiation and other things like you would for other lymphomas, What we're finding is if you can remove the implant and the capsule and any mass that might be seen along the chest wall in association with the capsule, then in large part we're seeing very good outcomes without any need for additional treatment. You gathered 128 cases. Did any of those patients die of the disease either locally or metastatic? At our center of the ones that we've treated, we have not had any patients die of the disease yet. So, interesting. Do you want to mention your other patient, the 40-year-old lady? Yeah, so she's someone who had breast augmentation in 2007, again, with textured implants. And what she noticed was that she had swelling of the left breast. And so she had saw her physician who did ultrasound, saw some fluid around the implant, thought it was probably an infection. And so they were aspirating it to send it for culture. They also sent some of the cells for pathology, and it was sort of a bloody aspirate, and the pathology revealed these ALK-negative anaplastic large cell consistent with this type of lymphoma. And so she's one of the cases where, again, we try to resect all of the implant capsule. And the reason we say it ends up being like a radical resection of the chest wall is because often the implant capsule becomes very densely adherent to the chest wall. And so you can't just remove the implant without really taking all of the tissue off of the ribs. And, you know, because in large part, the 
pectoralis muscles been lifted up and these are often, you know, the implants are often now placed in the retropectoral location. Whereas I think years ago with breast augmentation, plastic surgeons were usually doing, you know, submammary placement of implants for augmentation and now it's largely done in the retropectoral region. Well, that's where it makes it really challenging because these lymphomas, they really, they cause this dense reaction in the implant capsule just becomes densely adherent to the chest wall. So it's a pretty challenging procedure in terms of removing the entire capsule and the implant. But if we can do that and our pathologist then assesses the margins, especially along the chest wall, and they don't see anything at those margins and it looks like we've removed everything, then we're just observing the patients. We're just following them. So we're not doing any additional radiation or chemotherapy treatment. Your first patient got six cycles of CHOP, which is not the easiest therapy. Is there a role for chemotherapy in these patients? Well, you know, probably the ones from the initial series that Miranda put together, Roberto put together, it looked like those that have formation of a mass lesion as opposed to just a fluid collection, perhaps that's a more advanced stage of the disease. And so what he and some others in our group have been trying to do is develop a staging system that will be appropriate for categorizing, you know, just like we have for lung cancer and breast cancer and others, to try to decide which ones are really going to be best treated with local therapy and which ones might need systemic therapy. Do you have any sense of what fraction of implants that are now being done or have been done or textured? Are people still using that? Oh, I think in large part now there's a move to avoid use of textured implants. That's interesting. Yeah, a really strange story, actually, yes. when you think about it. Wow. <laughs> there must be a message in there, something about the pathophysiology of cancer. Right, right. Who knows what that Inflammation, is? Inflammation, I think, something in there. You know, it's... But anaplastic large cell lymphoma, I mean, yeah. that is really strange. Yeah. Let's maybe kind of getting back to more common scenarios. Let's talk about your 51-year-old lady. Okay, so this is a woman who presented with a small breast cancer, T1, but had an obvious lymph node metastasis, felt a node on physical exam, confirmed on ultrasound, invasive ductal carcinoma, grade 2, low ER at 5%. PR was actually 25% and HER2 new amplified. So this is a woman we talked about doing neoadjuvant therapy, and we used chemotherapy with dual-targeted anti-HER2 therapy, so trastuzumab and pertuzumab, for six cycles. And she had a really good response clinically, did not have any evident disease on physical exam or on imaging. The ultrasound showed that the axillary node that had been seen normalized in terms of its architecture. So there was no, so, you know, complete clinical response. We discussed the different types of treatments, and one of the things that we're doing now is this targeted axillary node dissection. So if the node was positive before chemotherapy, we put a clip in it. And then after chemotherapy, we do sentinel node biopsy, but we also target that clipped node, usually with an I-125 seed so that we're sure we recover that node because it's not always one of the sentinel nodes. And then we enrolled her on the Alliance A011202 trial, which is 
exploring the role of radiation versus axillary dissection after a positive sentinel node is identified after chemotherapy. So she was enrolled on that trial. She had a couple sentinel nodes removed, and we also recovered the CLIP node. And pathology, you know, as part of this trial, this is one case where we do frozen section on the nodes because we do an intraoperative randomization. So her sentinel nodes were negative for metastasis. The clipped node was negative. So since it was negative, she was not eligible for randomization. So we completed an axillary node dissection because, of course, that's our standard. But on final pathology, you know, all of her nodes were negative. I think she had 15 negative nodes. And in the breast, she also had a pathologic complete response. So this is something we're seeing more and more, even in our series that we published just a year or so ago from MD Anderson, where we were just using trastuzumab in chemotherapy. We're seeing 75% conversion to negative lymph nodes with this targeted therapy. So This patient is a case in point where we need to try to figure out a better way of treating the axilla so we're not taking out so many negative lymph nodes in these people who are having great responses to systemic therapy. So just to clarify, though, she had post-neoadjuvant therapy sentinel node negative as well as the clip node negative. Right. Why did you do an axillary dissection? Well, so she, again, she's on the Alliance trial, and so the standard is to do a node dissection in those individuals. And so the other reason that we decided to do it is because the sister trial that's being run by NRG is evaluating patients who've had a complete pathologic response who started out with node-positive disease. If they have a complete pathologic response in the nodes, They're being randomized to radiation versus no radiation. And so we told her that she would be eligible for that trial. So she actually was randomized to no radiation because she had a pathologic complete response. But just to clarify, if she or a patient like her were being treated outside a trial setting, her two positive common situation has a great response, starts out with a positive no, but again, a very good response. Would you then do a sentinel node after the therapy? And if it were negative, would you still do a dissection? So what we're doing now at my center, and we published some of the initial results, but we have a larger series that's going to be published very soon. Basically, we're doing what's called targeted axillary dissection. So in these patients that start out with node-positive disease, the false negative rate with sentinel node surgery after chemotherapy is higher than what we would like to see. So what we've done is we, again, we place a clip in the node that was biopsy positive, and we then after the chemotherapy, we do the sentinel node, but we also put a seed in the clipped node so we're sure we recover that because what we found is when you do sentinel node alone and then you do a node dissection, 25% of the time, the clipped node was not one of the sentinel nodes. So that probably accounts in large part for the higher false negative rate that we're seeing. You know, it's probably because there's more fibrosis. The dissection, sentinel node biopsy is not as easy after chemotherapy as it is in upfront surgery. And so when we do this targeted axillary dissection, we're calling it TAD, 
what we've done is we're making sure that we got that clipped node and looking at that histologically and looking at the sentinel nodes. And so now what we've found is the false negative rate when we use that approach is less than 2%. And so I think our future direction is to use TAD as opposed to axillary dissection. Right now, how are you approaching the question of neoadjuvant therapy or not in the patient with a HER2-positive tumor, particularly given the fact that as this patient got pertuzumab, which is approved in the neoadjuvant setting, there are people, oncologists use it post in the adjuvant setting, but it's not really approved in that situation. And of course, your institution's had a long history of just doing neoadjuvant therapy before this all started. Which patients do you not do neoadjuvant therapy on who have HER2-positive disease? Well, in general, those that are less than two centimeters in size that are node negative, and it kind of harkens back to the, our earlier conversations about, you know, sometimes the imaging is really not giving us the full picture, and so we would consider doing upfront surgery in those patients. But if they're node positive at presentation, or if they have a tumor that's greater than two centimeters in size, we would usually go ahead with neoadjuvant therapy and take advantage of, like you said, that we can use dual HER2-targeted therapy in the neoadjuvant setting, but probably not in the adjuvant setting right now. What have you observed in terms of how people tolerate neoadjuvant therapy when they get pertuzumab? I've heard oncologists say sometimes they see diarrhea or skin problems. Have you seen any side effect issues by adding the pertuzumab? Well, certainly in a few cases, but in large part, it seems to be very well tolerated. You know, each patient is a little bit different in terms of what they experience, but overall, I've seen it to be very well tolerated. So why don't we finish out speaking about your last patient, the 46-year-old woman? Yeah, so this is a case, 46-year-old with a T2N0 invasive ductal carcinoma grade 2, ER 99%, PR 60%, HER2 negative. So I think this is a case where you could go any number of directions. I think some people would favor doing upfront surgery and do, you know, a 21-gene recurrence score assay on the tumor afterward to determine if you know, she needed chemotherapy or not, strongly ER positive, grade two. She is 46, so a little bit younger than the average breast cancer patient. This patient in particular was a physician. She was very interested in the possibility of breast conservation, and she had a relatively small breast size compared with the tumor size, which was, you know, about three centimeters in size. So we decided to do neoadjuvant systemic therapy, thinking that if we could shrink the tumor, she might be a candidate for breast conservation. We did get some shrinkage, but it was about two centimeters after chemotherapy. And so, again, it was going to be, based on her breast size, it was going to be a relatively large defect, and she is a very thin woman, so we didn't think we were going to be able to have a good cosmetic outcome with breast conservation. So she went ahead with skin-sparing mastectomy, and she decided to do a contralateral mastectomy as well, which was something that she just, unfortunately, she kind of came up with that at the last minute and threw that one in there. But so we did implant-based reconstruction, did sentinel node dissection, and she had a um, two-centimeter tumor residual and one micrometastasis. And there were three sentinel nodes total. Two were negative. There was one micromet. 
So we recommended a completion node dissection. This was someone, you know, after neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then also a mastectomy patient as opposed to breast conservation. And then we talked about radiation therapy afterward. You know, these patients with ER-positive disease certainly have, in general, a lower rate of pathologic complete response to standard systemic therapy. So a micrometastasis after neoadjuvant chemotherapy in a patient like this, it really doesn't worry me as much as someone, you know, with ER-negative disease or HER2-positive disease that's had your best systemic therapy. But she had discussions with the radiation oncologist and decided to have post-mastectomy radiation therapy and is also now getting eczemestane. So I'm curious, you mentioned 21 gene recurrence score being used post-op. Are there any situations in patients like this? Again, looks like she maybe could have benefited from a better tumor response where you would use a 21 gene recurrence score pre-op to determine the kind of systemic therapy? Well, you know, some people might consider that. That's certainly not been our standard. But, you know, someone like this, I wonder if maybe a better approach wouldn't be to use neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. And so she was premenopausal at the time that we started her treatment. And so, you know, you probably have to use tamoxifen, and who knows if that is the best agent for this, but certainly in a postmenopausal patient, someone like this, I would have encouraged them to proceed with neoadjuvant aromatase inhibitor as opposed to doing neoadjuvant chemotherapy, because I think that what we're seeing is these strongly estrogen receptor positive tumors, we're seeing really good responses with endocrine therapy, in some cases much better than we've seen with systemic chemotherapy. The thing that I like about the neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, and in general it's the stage two and three patients that we're treating, is that not only do you get shrinkage that allows for breast conservation in many patients, but also you get prognostic information about whether or not they would benefit from chemotherapy. So Matthew Ellis and colleagues developed the PEPI score, which is actually really a good tool to use to determine the need for systemic chemotherapy after neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. Interesting. What about in the post-op situation? What are you all doing in terms of the use of the 21 gene recurrence score? I'm particularly curious in terms of patients with node-positive disease. So we're definitely using it in the node-negative patients and those with very limited node positive disease, you know, so sentinel node positive one or two sentinel nodes, low volume disease. We're definitely starting to utilize it more in that patient population. I wanted to ask you about one other topic, and that's the role of MRI in preoperative treatment planning. We're participating in the Alliance trial where patients who are eligible for breast conservation that have high-risk tumors, those that are HER2 positive and triple negative, are undergoing randomization to have an MRI or not. And we're trying to determine, you know, what is the clinical significance of these other things that MRI identifies in the breast, sometimes benign disease, but sometimes other sites of occult invasive disease that we didn't know about. And really, what impact is that having on local regional recurrence and outcomes and also on surgical treatment planning? So this, to me, is a very exciting trial because, you know, right now we get patients, it seems like everybody that comes to see me already has an MRI. 
And they're not always really good quality studies either. So then I have to decide, am I going to repeat it to try to get a better quality study? Or am I just going to ignore it? Or am I going to, you know, what am I going to do? And, and it often raises the question of, oh, there's something here and there's something there. We do another ultrasound. We do more biopsies. And it sometimes delays the patient getting to surgery because there's so much going on and so many questions that get raised. So to me, that's a really important area that we're interested in contributing to. Any particular situations where you found MRI particularly useful in that situation? Well, so the main thing is I try to pay attention to what my radiologists tell me about the density of the breast and how adequate they feel imaging is with mammography and ultrasound. You know, sometimes they tell me, wow, you know, these breasts are so incredibly dense. I really can't tell you what's going on beyond the mass that we know about. You know, there could be a lot more disease going on here. It could be more extensive. And so that's the case where I feel using MRI can be helpful because if we can clearly see that there's more extensive disease and we can biopsy that and prove it, then the patient can understand what the options are for local therapy a lot better or you know, we might proceed with systemic therapy because it's actually a much bigger tumor than what we realize. So largely it's those really young patients, very dense breasts, where you just don't feel like mammography is giving you a good idea of what's going on.